As we were just singing, we do pray that you speak to us and that you plant your word deep within our hearts. We don't want to be hearers only of your word, but rather doers who practice it and put it into action in our lives. And Father, we know the only way that we can do that is if the Holy Spirit convicts us, the Holy Spirit empowers us, and that you just equip us for the Christ-centered life. So help us today to hear the message that you have intended from your powerful and errant word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me begin this morning by sharing a uh, fictional modern-day parable, okay? So Alaska is famous, or rather infamous, for its dangerous sea coasts. And years ago, there was a particular stretch of coast that was well-known for being a place where there were lots of deadly shipwrecks. Many ships would go down in the water and people would end up drowning, So people on this strip of land in Alaska, a lot of the townspeople, they decided to group together to create a life-saving station to go out night or day into the water with little thought of their own safety or comfort and rescue those who were perishing in the waters beneath. Now, at first, this life-saving station was nothing fancy. In fact, it was kind of primitive. It was just a small shack that they made. They only had one boat. Their training wasn't super formal, but night or day, whatever it was, they were quick to go out into the waters and rescue those who were perishing from the shipwrecks. Well, after a while, they became quite famous in that region of Alaska because of how many lives were being saved and rescued out of the waters of certain destruction and pulled back into this life-saving station. And because it was becoming so famous, there were a lot of people in that area who were excited to join and give their time and their talents and their treasures to help build up this life-saving station. The membership began to explode. But you know, over time, as the new members joined, they looked around and they were kind of feeling a little bit bad about the shabby condition of the life-saving station, so they decided to do a renovation and expand it. So they got all new furniture, they replaced the emergency cots with real beds, they got new carpeting, they made the place look really nice. And you know, over time, they decided they wanted to get more formalized with their training, so they brought in a crew to train all the members on how to go out on life-saving missions, and before long, this community, this, this, area, this uh, particular life-saving station, it really became like a family for the members within it. And it became kind of the community hangout spot. Everyone who was anyone was there. And they really loved spending time together. And you could see that. It was obvious. They would shake each other's hands. They would hug each other. They would share about what was going on in their lives. It really became just the center point of the community hangout for that area. But the problem was, as the camaraderie grew between the club members people started not really wanting to go out on life-saving missions anymore because that was starting to get in the way of their fellowship. Well, one particular night, there was a really bad storm and a ship went down and they called in one of the lifeboat crews that they had kind of sourced their life-saving missions out to. They go out, they rescue the people from uh, the ship that had gone down, they bring them back in, and to their surprise, they see countless men and women of all ages, of all uh, financial circumstances. Some were sick, some were diseased, some were just really struggling, and they start pouring into their life-saving station. And guess what happened? Their new carpet was getting dirty. (laughs) 
The new beds were getting soiled. And people looked around and they realized those people that they were bringing out of that shipwreck, they were dirty and, and they were starting to get in the way of the, the fellowship that was within the membership of the life-saving crew. So the next day, the members arrived and realized that a few of the members had taken it upon themselves to build a shower right outside so people that were being rescued from the sea could clean themselves up before they came into the station. Well, shortly after, they had a, a committee meeting and at that meeting, they voted on whether or not to just stop the life-saving missions altogether. You know, they really re- liked that part. They, they recognized it was important, but really, they just enjoyed the membership and, and the community so much within the life-saving. Maybe they should just focus on that instead and really focusing on those life-saving missions. That was getting in the way of the fellowship. And a few people were upset. They said, it's literally in our name. It's our mission to save lives. How can we do that? And they said, well, if you really feel so passionate about that, why don't you just start your own life-saving station further down the coast? So they did. And after a few years, history repeated itself and the same thing happened. And it kept happening over and over and over and over. So if you went to this strip of coast in Alaska today, you would see a lot of yacht clubs, but very few life-saving stations. And shipwrecks are still often in those waters, but most people end up drowning. Now, I'm sure you've probably figured out what the parable's about, right? What do you think it's about? It's a little bit about the, how churches can often function, the history of churches, right? Churches are called to go out into the dark and stormy waters of this world of sin, of brokenness, and to rescue those and to bring them to a, a saving knowledge of, of Christ. That is the mission of the church, But the problem is so many churches have lost sight of that and instead they become managers of the the station members and they lose sight of their mission. But you know, may that never be true of Highland Community Church. As we think about our vision statement over this four-week sermon rotation, we absolutely want to be a church that connects an authentic community. We absolutely want to be a church that helps people grow in a vibrant relationship with Jesus. But we can't stop there. We don't want to be only inwardly focused. We want to be outwardly focused as well. We have to be a church that also cares about going out and rescuing the spiritually lost and suffering around us. We don't aspire to be the Christian yacht club of Wausau. We want to be a life-saving station in Wausau and Weston and Merrill and Marathon and throughout the entire area. But to be that life-saving station, that means that every single one of us takes responsibility for the calling in our lives to go and make disciples. And that really brings us to our big idea for this morning. If we were to summarize the rest of what I am talking about in one sentence, it's really this. To be a disciple of Jesus means that you also have to be a disciple maker for Jesus. To be a disciple of Jesus requires becoming a disciple maker for Jesus. All throughout the New Testament, Jesus makes it pretty clear. If you want to follow me, you have to be ready to fish for me as well. If you want the identity as a disciple, then you have to accept the calling of being a disciple maker. That's so clear all throughout of Scripture. If you are a Christian, congratulations. You are part of the rescue team. The world around us is filled with people who are spiritually shipwrecked and in need of someone pointing them to the Savior, to Christ, to the truth. We're called to be his rescue team, but really this morning we need to ask ourselves the question, 
how well are we doing with that? If we were to go back to our opening illustration, who do we resonate more with? The brave men and women who go out into the perilous seas at all times of night and day with little thought of personal comfort and safety to rescue those who are suffering? Or we, do we associate more with the members of the comfy Christian yacht club that are really good at attending the membership meetings but give little thought to a mission of going out and rescuing those around us? You know, I read a, a survey a while back that tried to gauge what percentage of born-again Christians have never led another person to faith in Christ. And that's not really a super fair statistic because, you know, uh, we understand that we scatter the seed, but God ultimately supplies the growth. But I just thought it would be interesting to at least see what that looked like. What percentage do you think? 95%. 95% is what the survey found. 95% of Christians said that they've never led anyone else to the Lord. Now, I, I don't know if that statistic is accurate. I at least hope it's not. But it reminds us that this idea of disciples becoming disciple makers really isn't that prevalent in today's churches. And the reality is there are all sorts of walls that we have in our lives that hold us back to witnessing. And if we don't address those walls, if we don't identify those walls, if we don't tear down those walls, we will never be the disciple makers that Jesus desires and calls us to be. So today, we are going to look at those different walls to witnessing and seeing how the apostles were able to overcome those walls and leave an example for us. So why don't you open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. While you're turning there, let me give you a, a little bit of background to our passage today. If you were to read through the book of Acts, it is a record of the expansion of the early church and the activities of the early church. So if we go all the way back to Acts chapter 1, we see the mission statement. We really see the thesis statement for the entire book of Acts. It comes from Acts chapter 1 verse 8. These are Jesus' final words to his apostles. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the rest of the book of Acts traces that expansion of the church through those areas. And the first five chapters we see on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming and filling the believers. Then we see the expansion of the church throughout all of Jerusalem. But as the church is expanding through Jerusalem, it did not go unnoticed. And there were some people, the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, who didn't like the competition. They didn't really like it at all. They labeled Christianity public enemy number one. And they decided they were going to do everything in their power to silence the Christian witness. So just before our passage, one night they go out and arrest all of the apostles and put them into jail. And that night, while the apostles are in jail, an angel of the Lord appears, miraculously unlocks the door and tells them to go and continue preaching the gospel. So the next day when the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, they go to call the apostles before them, they go to look and the apostles are gone and they have no idea where they're at. Well, guess where they're at? They're out in the temple courts evangelizing to everyone who would listen. So they gather the apostles in, bring them before the court, and that's where our text picks up today, starting in verse 27. It says this, And when they had brought them, they set them, being the apostles, before the council. And the high priest began to question them, saying, Didn't we strictly charge you not to teach in this name? Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. 
The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Pause for just a second. At this moment, a uh, wise older leader in the council steps up. His name is Gamaliel, and he calms everyone down from, from the edge. He says, let's not kill them yet. Let's give them a little bit of time to see whether or not their teaching is from the Lord. Because if we, if we don't, we might find ourselves actually opposing God's will. And we don't want to do that. So let's just back off. Don't kill them and see what happens. So they take Gamaliel's advice. And then in verse 40, after this, when they take his advice, they called the apostles together. And they decided to beat them and charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. You know, there are so many amazing truths that we could glean from this text, and we're not even going to come close to mining all of them out. However, this morning, I do want to examine the example that the apostles have left us of what it looks like to be a bold witness for Christ and going out as Jesus' rescue team into a lost and broken world and being disciples who become disciple makers. And you know, in these verses, I think we can identify at least four potential walls to witnessing that the apostles had to overcome in order to be witnesses for Christ. You know, the funny thing is, here we are 2,000 years later. I think these four walls continue to be the four main walls that hold Christ followers back from sharing their faith with those around us. So with the rest of our time this morning, I want us to consider how we can actively tear down these walls in our life to steal Ronald Reagan's thunder. (laughs) So here's our first potential wall to witnessing. Wall number one, the wall of indifference. The wall of indifference. Jesus used his last words on earth to commission his apostles to be his life-saving team, his life-saving crew in a lost and broken world. And when Jesus did that, the apostles could have responded in one of two ways. They could have responded with obedience or indifference. They could have responded by saying, you know what, Jesus, that, that, that sounds like maybe a suggestion, We're so busy planting the the first churches. We're so busy with the teaching and the preaching and the prayer and the division of the labor and the administration. We've got all of these other things going on. Maybe some other people can kind of be the evangelists. We don't really have time for that. That's not really our forte. They could have seen it as something that was an optional add-on for kind of the, the super spiritual. They could have said, you know, this is something that's just axillary and outside and not normative of the Christian life. They could have responded with indifference or obedience. But the disciples didn't view evangelism that way, did they? Look back at verse 29. The disciples, when they're told, you have to stop evangelizing, how did they respond? We must obey God. We must obey God. The disciples understood that evangelism isn't an optional elective that Christians get to opt in or out of. (laughs) Sharing our faith is a required aspect of the Christ-centered life. They overcame the wall of indifference by admitting obedience isn't optional. And we have to do the same. Obedience isn't optional. But here's the thing. 
There's a lot of Christ followers who live like obedience in this particular area is optional. I think there's a lot of Christians who allow the wall of indifference to tower high over their hearts. There's a lot of Christians who do see sharing their faith as something optional that they can choose whether or not to engage in. A couple of years ago, researchers discovered that only half, 52% of born-again Christians, said that they took initiative to share their faith with someone outside of their faith in the past year. So 50, one out of two, 52% of Christians said in the last year they shared their faith at least one time. You know what was even worse? Barner recently revealed a study that said almost 50% of millennial Christians, so my generation, the one that all the older generations always like to give a hard time. Well, you can for this one, okay? So 50% millennial Christians now say that they think it's actually wrong to evangelize someone who holds a different faith background than you. It's wrong to try to push your beliefs on someone else. We live in a Christian culture that's increasingly indifferent to the task of sharing our faith and making disciples. However, like the disciples, we have to be willing to say we must obey God. Obedience isn't optional. Evangelism is not the sole responsibility of the corporate church or pastors or missionaries or parachurch organizations. It's the responsibility of all of us. To be a disciple is to be a disciple maker. The New Testament doesn't have a category for a person who says Christ is their Lord and Savior, but they're indifferent about sharing their faith. You know, I think of what the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 17. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And the verse 18, he says, And this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. As we listen to that passage, we realize that obedience isn't optional, but obedience should also be a joy. As I read through those words and I think of the message of reconciliation that we get to share with people. I don't know about you, but it fills me with joy when I think of the transformation that Christ has made in my life. I look at the person who I would have been apart from the gospel, apart from God's forgiveness, apart from his sanctifying work, and it breaks my heart to think who I might have been. And it breaks my heart to think that the people around us don't know the freedom, the salvation, and the joy that they can have in Christ. Obedience isn't optional, but obedience should be a joy when we truly understand the power of the gospel in our lives. So that's the first wall, the wall of indifference. Here's our second wall that we see, the wall of inadequacy, the wall of inadequacy. After the disciples understood that Jesus gave them the mission to go and evangelize and to be his evangelist and to be his disciple makers, I'm sure that their first feeling was one of inadequacy. The disciples are looking around and saying, really? You want us to be your spokespeople? None of us have ever taken a speech class in high school. None of them had a communications degree from the local tech college, right? None of them were anyone that had a role of prominence in society. They were fishermen. They were the lower class. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, we learned that when people heard them speak, they were astounded because they were uneducated common men. 
scholars, debaters, orders. They were none of those things. When Jesus told them that they were to be his witnesses, I'm sure that at first they felt very inadequate for the job. And maybe that's how you feel as well. Maybe you do admit, you know, sharing my faith isn't optional. I, I'm, I'm willing to admit that. But it's, I, I'm not gifted now. I just can't do it. It's not for me. I'm not articulate enough. I don't know enough about the Bible. I don't feel like I'm far enough along in my sanctification. I feel like a hypocrite. I, I stutter on my words. We make all these excuses and we say, I can't. God, you got to pick someone else. We sound a lot like a hesitant Moses in Exodus chapter 4, don't we? God tells Moses, you are going to be my mouthpiece to go and speak to Pharaoh and go deliver the nation of Israel. And what does Moses do? He gives him excuse after excuse saying, I'm the worst choice possible, God. Pick someone else. And I love, I love God's response in Exodus 4 verse 12. He says, now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. God says to Moses, Moses, I know you're scared. I get it. I know that you don't feel equipped for the task. I know that you feel inadequate. But God says, you need to realize I will be with you. I'll give you the tools necessary to be successful. Essentially, God is saying, stop focusing on your inadequacy and start focusing on my sufficiency. And the same is true of us. We need to stop focusing on our inadequacy and start trusting in God's sufficiency. And you know, I think that's how the disciples overcame the wall of inadequacy in their lives. Look back at verse 32. They say, when they're responding to the religious leaders, they say, we are witnesses to these things. But notice what else they say. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. The disciples remembered that Jesus left them with a powerful partner for evangelism. Jesus didn't leave them alone. Jesus told them, stay here until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Then you will be my witnesses. As Christ followers, I think sometimes we forget that we have the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, living and abiding inside of us. The Holy Spirit gives us the words to say. The Holy Spirit applies the words that we speak to soften people's hearts. There have been moments where I've heard another Christian share the gospel, and I think there's no way that's going to be effective. And then it is miraculously, and I think that's just, it's the Holy Spirit. And there's times where I felt like I've shared the gospel so clearly and it just went flat because I was trying to rely on my own words. It's not us. We have a powerful partner and we have to remember that to help us overcome the wall of inadequacy. Think about it this way. Let's say that this summer, Pastor Jeff and Pastor Dave challenge me to a two-man golf scramble. Okay, best ball golf scramble, right? Now, if you don't know this, Pastor Jeff and Pastor Dave are the dynamic duo of the, of the fairways. They are fantastic golfers. No one has ever called me dynamic at golf. Dismal is more accurate, but I'm a terrible golfer, okay? So they challenge me to a golf match. Now, in that moment, how am I feeling? Inadequate. Defeatist. I'm going to be a loser. I don't even want to go out on the golf course because I know that I don't stand a chance. But let's say that they tell me that I get to choose my partner. And I think, you know what? I'm just going to lob a Hail Mary. I'm going to send Tiger Woods an email and see if he'll be my golf partner for this golf scramble. You know, if we can meet over at one of the, at the, at one of the golf courses and he'll show up. And by some miracle, he emails back and says, sure, Andrew, I'd love to be your golf partner, right? 
So we show up, and there's Jeff and Dave looking as cocky as ever because they're confident they're going to win, right? And then at that moment, let's say that I walk up, and then Tiger Woods gets out of a car, and he's my partner for the day. Now at that moment, how am I feeling then? Pretty confident, right? Has anything changed about my skill? No. Has anything changed about how good I can swing the clubs? No. But what I realize is I now have a partner that when I mess up the shot, he can compensate and get us right where we need to be on the green. That's how it is with the Holy Spirit. We're not alone in our task of evangelism. We have a partner who can take even when we feel like it's slurred, mumbled, messed up, and he can apply that to people's hearts if we're faithful to obey him. Our fear of inadequacy fades away when we recognize the power of our partner. We have to be faithful to scatter the seed, and God says, I'll take full responsibility to supply the growth. You know, that brings us to our third wall to witnessing that we see, the wall of fear and shame. The wall of fear and shame. How many of us have ever felt like God, through the Holy Spirit, was prompting us to share our faith with a classmate, a coworker, someone sitting next to us on the plane, a family member, and, you know, God would just... God teed it up. It was, a, it was an underhanded, slow softball pitch. We could knock it out of the park and we just watch it fly by because we're scared, right? We let fear silence us. I'm sure all of us would raise our hand. I would raise my hand. We've all had those moments where God has given us an easy one and we've just passed on it. And a lot of the times it's, it's the wall of fear and shame that holds us back. We're afraid of being rejected. We are afraid of damaging that friendship we're afraid of what other people might think. We're afraid, we're afraid of being labeled in this person's mind. Fear can be a really powerful silencer. And I'm sure that the disciples felt the temptation to be afraid when it came to witnessing. Just look, into what, just look at what happened to them in verse 40. It says, after the council had deliberated, they called the apostles back in, and then they beat them and charged them, you can no longer speak in the name of Jesus, and then let them go. The, the beating here would have been a flogging of 39 lashes. It would have been with a whip that was three strips of cowhide with all sorts of sharp metal pieces in it that would have been terrible on their exposed backs and chest. This is not a slap on the wrist. This is a heavy beating. And they say, if you keep it up, it's going to get worse. The disciples, when they went to witness, they had a lot more to be afraid of than we do. It wasn't a potential financial, relational loss. They knew that it might cost them their lives. And for 11 of the 12, it did. They all died a martyr's death. Yet they refused to allow fear to silence them. And that's an important lesson for us to learn from. Because we do live in a culture that increasingly wants Christians to feel scared and ashamed to share their faith. It's not really that popular to be a Christian anymore. You don't gain a lot of social clout by being a religious person. And we need to expect to be greeted with a little bit of opposition and hostility at times as we are living the Christ in our life and sharing our faith with others. However, being a Christ follower means that we are committed to doing the right thing regardless of the cost. We can't be afraid to speak up and share the truth. You know, as I was reading through this, it reminded me of a story that Pastor Steve shared a couple years ago in our young adults group. There was uh, a news story a couple years ago that was making uh, kind of its cycles around the world, focusing on a, a young boy who had been bullied up in Canada. This young boy suffered from cerebral palsy, and he was oftentimes bullied by his classmates. 
And one day there had been a lot of rain. It was kind of the wet season there. And as they were walking to school, they walked to this normal valley where it was usually dry, but from all the rains, there was a, a small stream that essentially emerged. And some of the older bullies made this boy lay down face first in the water so one of the girls could walk across his back so that she could stay dry and not get her shoes wet. And what's even worse is there were about 20 of his classmates around and no one spoke up and did a thing. A few people took some pictures and videos, but no one spoke up and did a thing. And as they interviewed some of the parents of those other students, they said how ashamed they were that their kids weren't willing to stand up and do the right thing. And why do you think those kids didn't speak up? Do you think some of them knew that was wrong and atrocious? Yeah. They were afraid. They were afraid that they'd get bullied next. They were afraid of losing that friend. They were afraid of sticking out. I think of how many of us do the same thing on a spiritual level. We see sin in a friend, in a family member, a coworker's life, and it's a bully. That sin is just punishing them. And they're enslaved, they're addicted, they're trapped in that sin. And we know that someone needs to stand up and defend them and tell them that someone has died to set them free from that sin. But we're afraid. We're afraid of what other people might do. We're afraid of getting bullied by the crowd and the culture. So we just stand silently by as sin continues to afflict blow after blow to that person. We can't let fear hold us back from doing what we know is right. And the disciples, how did they overcome this wall of fear and shame? They overcame it by, look, look at verse 41. Look at verse 41. It says this, They left that day from their beating, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They rejoiced in their dishonor because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. In that moment, they recognized we are rejoicing because we have obeyed God. And in his eyes, he is pleased with what we're doing. They had learned to focus on pleasing God over pleasing people. That's how we overcome the wall of fear and shame. We have to prioritize pleasing God over pleasing people. Think of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 through 28. He says, Don't fear though, uh, so have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will be not made known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot fear, uh, kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The key to overcoming our fear of man is to cultivate a stronger fear of the Lord in our lives. The disciples were able to walk away from their flogging rejoicing because they realized we stood up for what God wants in the midst of a trial and he is pleased with that. They realized in light of eternity, it really doesn't matter how well the culture accepts us. It really doesn't matter how comfortable we are in this life. It really doesn't matter how applauded we are by the crowds. But how well we obey God, that matters in eternity. Our ability to lead another person to Christ, that impacts that person's soul for all of eternity. And nothing is more significant than that. We have to get our priorities straight and live with an eternal focus and focus on pleasing God more than pleasing people. We have to cultivate an eternal perspective. You know, a few months ago, I was over in Stockholm meeting with some of our new missionary partners with Reach Global. And while I was over there, I had the opportunity to meet a guy named Bashir. Bashir met up with us, and he was in Stockholm as a church planter and evangelist. And Bashir was natively from, uh, from 
just outside of, of Ethiopia. He was in a highly Islamic area of the world. He grew up in a highly uh, Islamic family. And then one day, someone about a decade ago came to his village and shared the gospel with Bashir. And Bashir became a Christian quickly. And his life was radically transformed. And Bashir went around throughout all of his area and his village and his uh, territory. And he was sharing the gospel with everybody. So much so that he literally got kicked out because they were going to kill him. And now he's over in Stockholm. And, he's, and he was the most joyous person I've ever met. He really was. He was an amazing, amazing guy. And he was just talking about how the Lord has been so faithful to him and how much he loves the Lord. I just don't think we see a lot of that in the American church. If we get made fun of once, our witness is shut down for life. I want to be a man like Bashir. I hope all of us have that desire within our hearts as well. So that's our third wall. Here's our last wall with our last two, couple minutes. Our fourth and final wall. The wall of busyness. The wall of busyness. Notice how our passage ends. The disciples have just been threatened and released. And at this point, you're guessing, maybe they're going to start finding another hobby in their free time. Maybe they're going to do a little less evangelizing, a little more crocheting or something else, right? F figure out something else to fill their time. But notice their response. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Every day they were going out and teaching the gospel and preaching the gospel. They overcame the wall of busyness by embracing a lifestyle of everyday evangelism. They embraced a lifestyle of everyday evangelism. You know, that's so important for our lives because one of the modifiers that we hear most often and probably comes off our lips so often is life is busy. We have Google calendars that are packed. We have activities that begin from sunrise to sundown. We are busy. We're running around in frantic mode constantly because we have so much going on in our lives. And because of that, because we're in such a hurry, because we're so busy, a lot of the times we, left, we leave opportunities to build a relational bridge for the gospel unbuilt. <laughs> we just don't think about that. We don't think about a lifestyle of everyday evangelism. We want, to be known for we want to be known as people that Jesus is always on our lips, that people can see Christ in us. But we're never going to be able to do that if we prioritize projects over people. We have to be people-oriented citizens of the kingdom. That means we need to slow down and get to know the person that's checking out our groceries at Walmart. <laughs> That means we need to get to know the people that work out beside of us in the gym that we see every day, but we've never learned their name. That means we need to get to know our neighbors and invite them over and build relationships with them. That means we need to build a strong relationship with our coworkers so it's not awkward when something's going on in their life. We ask if there's something we can do to help or if we can pray for them or find a way to encourage them. We need to find ways just to weave our faith and our Savior throughout the fabric of our everyday lives. We need to embrace a lifestyle of everyday evangelism. Who are the people that God has placed in your life, within your sphere of influence, that he wants you to reach for the kingdom? Because you do. You have a sphere of influence that nobody else has. There are people that you are uniquely gifted to interact with, and to invest in spiritually. People that no one else can. How are you taking advantage of the sphere of influence that God has placed in your life? Imagine how the gospel might move throughout all of our area if we were truly people who 
embraced everything that we've talked about today. If we were disciples who took real our responsibility to be disciple makers. But we'll never do that unless we overcome the wall of indifference, the wall of inadequacy, the wall of shame and fear, and the wall of busyness. We want to be a church that connects and grows, but we also want to be a church that goes into our community with the gospel of Christ. May Highland Community Church never be the Christian Yacht Club. Let's be a life-saving station for Christ right here. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the opportunity to open your word this morning and be challenged and yet simultaneously encouraged by the example that the apostles left us. Father, I don't know if I can say with a sincere heart this morning that if it came to being beaten for sharing the gospel, if I would go away rejoicing. And Father, that's, that's, that's my fault. Help us to have a deeper realization of what it means to be ambassadors for Christ. Father, help us to be kingdom-oriented people. Help us to have an eternal perspective. And help us to realize that fitting in the applause of our culture, the comforts of this world, are nothing in compared with the joy of eternity. And seeing the joy of knowing someone's eternal fate was changed by being your mouthpiece. Father, help us to know the joy of the gospel fully in our lives so that it promotes us to share the gospel with others. Help us to be your witnesses. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.